Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to January's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I wish a happy new year to all of our listeners out there. It's certainly been an interesting year in the world of batteries and battery materials, and I'm delighted to welcome my co-presenter, Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy, to run through some of the key talking points for December and 2021 as a whole, and maybe talk a little bit about 2022. Welcome, Cormac. Thanks, Matt. Great to be back for another year. So is this Happy New Year part one for you, since you've also got Chinese New Year to celebrate? Yeah, yeah. We uh, quickly uh, shifted over to Chinese New Year mode now. All the decorations are up and now I must get money together to uh, pass out red packets. That's <laughs> nice. Cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully there's uh, there's a bit more money available this year than in previous years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay, let's kick off then. There's a lot to talk about here. Obviously, a, a fair amount happened in uh, December, a fair amount happened in, in, in 2021. Should we just talk a little bit about the Chinese battery situation? A few less or a few fewer um, announcements in December, but still a pretty amazing year in terms of battery capacity announcements. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a little slower on the battery capacity announcements during the um, during December, I think I have a few heard. The major one, obviously, was the S-Volt. Um, S-Volt announcing that they're going to have 600 gigawatt hour capacity by um, 2025, which is a huge number. It was going to be as much as Europe's announcements only, you know, 12 months ago. So, and Lishan, which is a well-known Chinese battery manufacturer, Tianjin Lishan, which hasn't really grabbed headlines over the last number of years, but they'll be building a quite extensive battery plant through 36 watt hour gigawatt hours. And again, CATL and BYD are going. Gangbusters, their approach is slightly different. They're building these uh, battery or energy storage parks, which would um, include yeah, some raw uh, material processing, battery uh, cell manufacturing, and battery pack manufacturing. Again, uh, as the theme that we've seen in China is integration up and down the supply chain. Okay, okay, that's interesting. And I, I guess, you know, while we're talking about up and down the supply chain, we've seen quite a lot of announcements in the LFP supply chain in the last couple of months or so. Concerns that they might uh, cause overcapacity in the LFP side going forward? Well, there's been uh, a lot more LFP announcements than um, NMC or NCA ternary type material announcements, both downstream, midstream. Announced capacity for LFP is a lot greater than NMC. So that gives us an idea where the market is heading. A lot of players who aren't household names in LFP market, but are in the phosphate, phosphoric acid, fertilizer industries are throwing their hat in the ring to try and, uh, first of all, many companies want to break into the energy uh, transition. And this is a good way for these uh, the guys to do because they're from traditionally uh, very energy intense industries. And, you know, with the patents expiring in uh, lithium iron phosphate, a lot of companies, uh, Chinese companies especially, not so much globally are really expanding um, LFP production. There's a concern already that there could be an oversupply of lithium iron phosphate cathode material in the very near future, meaning two to three years. That would drive down cost pricing. And then like, well, how would European or US LFP manufacturers compete against very low Chinese oversupply uh, LFP? 
Uh, well, well I, I suppose if uh, they didn't want to sit on their hands, uh, it would be very good for European and US users to buy cathode materials from uh, China because there's been a huge underinvestment in the cathode supply chain in LFP so far announced. I mean, there, there might be more announcements going forward, but obviously Frere came out with an announcement uh, of a cathode plant quite recently. But given you know the likely uptick in demand for LFP in China and globally, and the number of new models coming to the market, they're using LFP. I would say that LFP is under invested, both in terms of battery factories and in terms of the supply chain outside China. The rest of the supply chain might be very much um, reliant on Chinese cathode supply going forward. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Both Europe and US haven't really invested in uh, NMC uh, capacity, let alone LFP. (laughs) Yeah, well, we've seen the announcements starting to go through for ternary capacity, but very, very little so far in the way of of LFP. And I think a lot of European projects have been quite slow to see the, the growth in LFP over the last sort of 12 to 18 months or so. I'm hopeful that we will see more battery factory announcements going forward, but importantly, also the LFP supply chain. There isn't an awful lot of uh, that sort of supply in in Europe and the US. So yeah, I think that's a a key area. And just sort of sticking with chemistry, um, I've seen a couple of essays over the last couple of months, which have been suggesting that the um, new 4680 form factor is going to bring focus in the industry back to ternary batteries and away from from LFP, similar to how the blade battery effectively uh, refocused on LFP. What's your view on that? I agree to it to a certain extent. The hope was not only do you drive up packing efficiency, increase cell uh, pack energy density, and by sheer scale of manufacturing, that you'd be able to reduce the costs of ternary materials, NMC-type materials. And in the not-so-distant future, that would be on a par, the same price, because the ceiling is almost there for lithium-iron phosphate, would be on a par with the price of lithium-iron phosphate, but you get an extra 200 kilometers or whatever, depending on your battery pack. So um, that was the idea before uh, we had the squeeze in 2021, which I'm sure you We'll yeah. discuss later. But, um, yeah. Uh, okay. So, I mean, obviously, if, if raw material prices go up, particularly for cobalt and, and nickel and high-purity manganese, which obviously are much higher value products than um, iron phosphate or lithium-iron phosphate, then that obviously kicks uh, a lot of those improvements into long grass in terms of price per kilowatt hour. I guess probably we should talk a little bit about EV sales because it has been a well, it was a stellar month in December for for Chinese EV sales, a, a real bounce back in November in Europe as well. And initial numbers are suggesting that uh, we're going to be probably close to to six million EV sales globally this year, which is what around about a hundred percent more than it was last year, yeah. which is uh, practically unheard of at the beginning of the year. So, what do we think? about uh, the outlook for 2022? I didn't have 6 million in my number for last year. So I'm not great with numbers, but I I predicted earlier this year over 10 million for 2022. But then I read an article by an unknown author today (laughs) who threw a bit of water on that maybe. But (laughs) Really? Unknown author? Okay. Unknown. (laughs) 
I'm looking at somewhere between nine and 10 million. I'm hovering on the 10 million mark. Others have it at 11. Others have it even significantly lower than that. But, um, you know, I'm not sure how close you were to your number last year for 2021. I was at the top end of consensus expecting sales of 4.7 million. That turned out to be uber conservative, as we know. So, yeah, I was out despite being uh, overly optimistic at the beginning of the year. For 2022, I'm not so sure. I've um, published a a forecast today as we record on EV sales. And basically, I've published two forecasts. One is a a materials constrained forecast, i.e. what battery raw materials available in the market. And the other one is an unconstrained forecast. Now, my unconstrained forecast, i.e. if there were no material constraints or battery constraints in the market, is over 10 million vehicles next year. Unfortunately, my constrained forecast is that much lower because I just do not feel that there's going to be enough lithium for starters and potentially graphite and other raw materials in the market to supply in excess of 10 million units. And in fact, my current EV sales forecast for 2022 is seven and a half million units, which obviously is right at the bottom end of consensus. Now, I love to be at the top end of consensus. But given the material that is extant in the market at the moment, I can't be. I think, you know, that has big implications for going on because based on my numbers by 2030, uh, we could be giving up as much as 30 million units a year because of undersupply in raw materials. And, you know, I've been going on and on about this for a while. And a number of us have been in the the market, but now we're able to actually put some numbers on here. And, you know, for the autos industry, that's a disaster because if you're investing $30 billion in building new EV factories, new battery factories, how profitable are those operations going to be if they're only only running at 50 or 60% capacity utilization? And of course, they're not going to be. And on top of that, if they are running at very low capacity utilizations because of a shortage of material in the market, then prices for raw materials are going to remain stronger for longer. And that also is going to impact profitability on the EV side. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we really need the, the downstream part of the industry being cell manufacturers and OEMs to start paying attention now because um, we, are, we are heading towards a car crash, excuse the horrific yeah. pun, quite rapidly. Yeah, yeah. It's one way to look for sure. I do see a bit more crosstalk in the industry now. For example, OEMs integrating midstream now. You got GM and Posco. You got Umicorn, Volkswagen. There is a bit more of a conversation going on there than we've seen before. I agree, but uh, you know that the, the problem is it's been clear that there was going to be a supply demand imbalance for the last three or four years. People have been talking about it. We still haven't seen any auto manufacturers actually put their money where their mouth is. Now, I'll reiterate again, offtake agreements are not enough. You've got to start putting investments into the industry if you actually want there to be enough supply of raw material in the industry, which has been capital constrained over the last three years. So, you know, this this is a, a real problem. And it's great to see OEM starting to go into the midstream where there is also a big capital constraint and potentially a a big supply constraint, but they've got to come all the way up the industry supply chain if we're going to head off what could be a a very painful 
situation for the for the OEMs going forward. Yeah, if the knock-on effect is pricing, it will really defeat what's been worked on for the last number of years because you know it's all hedges on on the final price. I mean, on raw materials and where it ends up and the final final product. And it was all based on a theme that the price was only going one direction. That work was based on, you know, very poor analysis and backward looking analysis. And it's just very weak analysis. I, I won't talk about the groups that are responsible, but. The study was based on pricing, current pricing, what people actually paid for sales capacity that was available online and capacity announcements. Uh, I don't think, as you said, there was other parts of the supply chain uh, looked at as yeah. a factor. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, for me, the EV industry succeeds or fails with consumers if they can get EV prices down. Uh, I mean, it's become very clear in the last year that the models of EVs that are selling well with a one or two noticeable exceptions which are recognized brands the models that are selling well are the cheaper models so obviously there is a price feature of the market in a way that there hasn't really been in the early stages of the ev market so it really is very important for auto manufacturers to get the prices of these units down which is obviously very difficult if your raw materials prices and your battery prices are increasing it's interesting the way the industry is evolving now. Uh, most of the, the new Chinese models that are being announced for this year, that's been happening for a few years. Each model comes in three different categories. You got the standard, you got that extended range, and you have an LFP version. This is the consumer will have the choice whether they want a big pack, a ternary pack, you, if you're educated enough and, and you know the demands that you need, or you have the LFP. I don't know if that's been seen in the auto industry before. Where um, yeah, I mean, I think it is interesting, and you know? I mean, clearly the auto industry is is changing changing its its approach to to EVs, and we are seeing, you know, very big changes within the industry. I mean, you know, you can buy a lot more EVs online rather than having to go into dealerships now. So the the auto industry is definitely, you know, changing its approach. Um, but um, when it comes to sort of procurement of, of upstream materials, it's still a little bit like a super tanker and it's sort of taking a long time to turn around. I guess your your point about the different batteries sort of leads into uh, a, a, a similar point, which is, you know, where, where are we going to go for pack sizes going forward? Because obviously there's a, a lot of EVs announced out there with very big batteries. But if you look at the top 10 best-selling EVs in both China and Europe, it contains a large amount of EVs with quite small battery sizes. So, so where do we think the industry is going to go with that? Battery pack sizes have been shrinking in, in China over the last three years since 2019, yeah. predominantly due to the uh, very high sales of the uh, Wuling, the GM SAIC <laughs> Wuling. That's not the only vehicle out there that's got a, a, a small battery in the in the top ten, is it? The, the, yeah, well, there's the Aura as well from yeah. Great Wall Motors. That's been selling quite well. Almost nearly every Chinese major auto manufacturer has a mini EV, and lots were announced during the uh, December as well. We haven't seen the uh, Chinese EV startups like Neo, Xpeng, Li Auto move into the mini EV market yet, but the traditional OEMs, uh, neither at BYD actually, but uh, uh, Great Wall, Cherry, 
GAC, uh, some of them uh, FAW, Chang'an, some of the uh, the traditional ICE manufacturers have uh, tapped into this market and it's very popular. Neo's uh, made noises, hasn't it, about going into the mass market, but haven't actually announced anything yet. Well, there was a Neo Day recently, and it wasn't. An, they announced a new uh, saloon type car, uh, yeah. quite similar to the Model Three, a smaller car, but um, right. nothing on the mini size. But the minis are very popular, and as I said, the battery packs have been shrinking since 2019. I think the average battery pack in China now is 48 kilowatt hour, compared to Europe or US, probably closer to 60 or even uh, 70. One of the vehicles that we've been keeping a very close eye on in Europe is the Dacia Spring which only launched, uh, I think, about three months ago. And, and that's moved very rapidly into the top 10 selling EVs in Europe. And that's got a selling price, I think, sub 20,000 euros. And it's not a mini EV by any stretch of the imagination. It's kind of like a small SUV, really. That's performing very well, particularly considering you know, the size of, of Dacia. So I think you know, that could be a bellwether for the European industry as well. And you know, we did ask in BMR at the beginning of the year whether that could be the first you know, mass market EV in Europe going forward or similar, something similar to that. So I think that's a, you know, really interesting consideration. The other area why that is so important is obviously if you have a 40 kilowatt hour battery as your core battery, that's going to use a lot less materials than a 60 or 70 kilowatt hour battery. So if these smaller EV batteries take off for the mass market models, then that means that the industry can produce a lot more vehicles for the amount of raw materials that are available. Yeah, the inventory of these cars is uh, sub 5,000 USD, which is, uh, I guess, a lot cheaper than Dacia. Yes, um, quite a lot cheaper. Yeah, <laughs> sub, there aren't too many 5, European cars that are available for, for less than $5,000. Most of the mini EVs are around the 5,000 US dollar mark. Some of them come in four-door, believe it or not. Or again, you can get slightly bigger battery packs, a little bit more uh, software and entertainment. But um, yeah, $5,000 car, I'm not sure it's going to sell US or Europe. Has there been any example of a $5,000? No, I don't think so. And I mean, even, you know, for instance, the Dacia Spring is based on a model that was sold in China, but because it has to be upscaled a little bit for the European market, it's in no way comparable with the Chinese model. And in fact, it's a, a lot more expensive than that. So I think, you know, models that are successful in China aren't, uh, certainly in the mass market area, aren't going to necessarily move directly over from China to Europe without uh, being uh, slightly up tooled, shall we say. Could be right, but the great little city runaround, so... Yeah. Okay, so uh, we touched on chemistry a little bit earlier. One of the um, chemistry issues that I hear about a lot is this whole issue of sodium iron and whether the sodium iron supply chain is is going to be much more accessible than the lithium-ion supply chain and whether sodium-ion can sort of take over. You were telling me earlier that we had the first sodium-ion gigafactory announced in China. Do you want to talk a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a sodium-ion company or tech company. It's been around for a few years called Haina, as in Haina Sodium NA. They've broke ground to build, complete their first gigafactory, one gigawatt hour, by the way, will be put into production by the end of 2022. So just a gigafactory. Well, yeah, just a gigafactory, not a terra yet, but expected to grow to 30 gigawatt hour. But uh, 2022 could be the first time we'll see um, sodium ion sell in a battery pack. 
And talking about the sort of application of these sodium ion cells, I've heard more likely to be ESS, more likely to be large vehicles, unlikely to be passenger electric vehicles. Is that your understanding as well? Not according to what the um, CATL have planned with their uh, dual hybrid chemistry battery pack, which is mixture of sodium cells and combined with um, LFP cells. So it'd be interesting to see it in a passenger vehicle. I don't know if it would be suitable for heavy good trucks. If you're thinking about the trucking, be interesting to see uh, how it does um, for buses, though, because uh, buses are you know used every day. We found it already. This is why electric buses are so successful. They're always within good uh, range to be charged. They can be charged frequently en route. They can be charged on the side of the road. Uh, you can charge it overhead. There's many options. So. I could see I could see one of the major first uses being in electric buses. Okay, okay, that, I mean that's interesting. So I mean I think it's only as we start to see this uh, technology being established that we'll really understand how viable the supply chain is. It's very easy to say that there's a lot of sodium chloride around, but whether there's sodium chloride of the correct grades and whether there's materials to make the other parts of the batteries of the correct grades to the scale that we would need for, for large take-up of, uh, of this chemistry remains to be seen. And I have some concerns about that, but uh, we'll see how it, how it goes, uh, how it performs going forward, I guess. Well, we haven't seen a, a full cost analysis of, I guess there's my, a couple of working papers out there, but I haven't really seen any full cost analysis. There's been um, you know, some numbers thrown around in comparison per cost per kilowatt hour compared to lithium-ion, but really can't take it seriously until it's, uh, uh, you know, they're referring to mass scale numbers. And in the end, is it competitive in terms of energy density and cost? If it's only a little benefit and cost, but a big sacrifice in energy density, then maybe, maybe not. But um, yeah, yeah. But okay. It's good, it's good to have it in the back pocket in case we do yeah. have these bottlenecks. And yeah. The other side and, of and of course, you know, on the ESS side, uh, we've also got other chemistries in the back pocket, particularly yeah. long duration chemistries like vanadium redox, um, vanadium redox oh. flow and chromium flow and iron flow and zinc, zinc, zinc batteries. Yeah. So, you know, there are other techs out there, particularly on the ESS side, which could take a little bit of market share away from lithium ion going forward if there was a shortage of material. And indeed, you know, in some applications, those longer duration batteries would be a better solution, particularly, you know, alongside renewables plants for long duration storage. So, you know, that there, there are certainly potential around the fringes in the ESS space, in the stationary storage space for different chemistries, which, you know, could be helpful to the industry going forward. Energy storage is very sensitive to cost. And that's why uh, lithium ion found more uses as the cost went down and moved 15 minutes frequency response to uh, 30 minutes to one hour, two hours, moving up to four hour, which it wasn't cost effective only a few years ago because of the price of cells. And if prices continue to stabilize, if they stabilize or continue to go up, then this industry is not uh, committed to lithium ion like the automotive industry. So uh, there's room to pivot, especially for long, uh, longer duration um, uses. So, and I, uh, you know, I think one of the things, uh, particularly on the vanadium, uh, the VRFB side that's very interesting is when the vanadium prices spiked a few years ago, a lot of the um, potential VRFB manufacturers came up with a mechanism 
whereby you can rent the vanadium for the life of the battery. And that takes a lot of the upfront costs out of the order. And I think you know that could make certainly the vanadium, the RFB uh, battery of, of more potentially more interest. And it's also potentially a mechanism that could be used in the lithium battery side with the OEMs. In fact, you know, we've seen companies like NEO using a similar solution whereby you don't, you know, the consumer doesn't own the battery. NEO continues to own the battery. The consumer effectively rents the battery and that lowers the upfront cost of the unit quite considerably. So that's a, an interesting takeaway. Well, we seem to be sort of touching on the issue of prices quite a lot. So let's uh, let's move on to there. And obviously, it's been quite a year for, for raw materials prices in general. And I would say lithium in particular up uh, between four and five times during 2021. And, and moving forward, lithium carbonate spot price was up something like 40% in China in December. So my forecast, which I made probably about three or four weeks ago now of uh, $60 per kilogram lithium is now looking more and more likely and uh, more and more conservative, which is a little bit scary, really. That is scary. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like you're a gambling man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I wish uh, I was a bit more of a gambling man. (laughs) Uh, I just read an article today in Chinese uh, media outlet predicting that there will be adequate supply of lithium for China this year. They, based on uh, expansion capacity announcements by traditional big five, big three lithium projects or lithium yeah. chemical yeah. manufacturers. I think the issue is that I see a lot of the supply additions being back-end weighted. So the new supply that, that potentially will come on in Western Australia, I mean, Pilbara Minerals was out with a warning at the beginning of December. They said their supply has been delayed. And as I said in, in this month's um, battery materials review, the only constant in the universe beside death and taxes is that mining projects will come into production later than management initially says. For me, there hasn't been a lithium expansion project or or greenfields project that has come into production when the management team has, has said so any time within the last five, six, seven years. So I, I fear that a lot of the capacity additions this year are going to be back-end weighted. So it's going to be very tight for the first six or seven months of the year. And then potentially there could be more supply coming into the market after that. Yeah, that makes sense uh, for my brief uh, encounter with the uh, mining industry. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Where can prices go? I think it's a very, very interesting question. I, I published that $60 a kilogram lithium carbonate price forecast, which is now looking uh, more and more conservative. I think the story now is out in terms of resource scarcity in a lot of these battery materials. I think nickel has been a bit of a feeding frenzy for early stage nickel projects over the last two or three months. I think there are some really interesting low-grade sulfide, nickel sulfide projects, polymetallic nickel sulfide projects out there which I think the market should be paying more attention to than, than it is at the moment. I think in the graphite side, uh, we're seeing a lot of tightness, very positive momentum in prices. And the number of ex-China graphite companies that are in production, I can probably count in, on the fingers of one hand. Very interesting um, move by Northern Graphite to pick up Imeris's graphite business, which was announced at the beginning of December. 
It'd be very interesting to, to see where that stock goes when that deal goes through. Could be very, very significant in terms of impact on the on the graphite market. Uh, and then obviously um, on the lithium side, there is a clear recognition that there's a real problem, certainly within the mining industry, even if not downstream of that. And uh, obviously the biggest acquirer in the lithium space in uh, 2021 was Ganfeng. And the Chinese clearly showing strategically that they're a little bit smarter than the competition, wouldn't you say? Two pretty large announcements on the lithium side in uh, December, the Rio Tinto acquisition of the um, Rincon project in Argentina. Yeah. And also the Huayu acquisition of uh, the Prospect Resources project in Zimbabwe. And, uh, you know, add that to the other five or six major lithium project acquisitions this year or in 2021. I think uh, it sets up 2022 to be a, a, a big year for people trying to put their feet on, uh, on resource assets. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the Huawei uh, step into hard rock mining? Uh, seems they're going alone, right? Um, well, it's a very, uh, it's a very racy price. You know, very racy. Four hundred uh, million or something. Uh, is it, how much was that at uh, per ton? I mean, in terms of the takeout multiple, it it, it, it is pretty pretty significant. It's um, over two hundred dollars ton compared to the to the Rio takeout multiple, which is under or around about $100 uh, dollars a ton oh, wow. in, in terms of uh, contained yeah. uh, lithium carbonate resources. So it's, it's quite a racy, uh, racy multiple. And we have seen some you know, major uh, hard rock takeouts this year. And I think there's, there's, there's starting to be a pretty uh, major bifurcation between hard rock resources, which are close to infrastructure, and landlocked ones, which perhaps uh, are attracting uh, lower prices. But uh, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on that hard rock space. In Battery Materials Review, we, we split the uh, lithium developers into generations. And I think yeah. this fourth generation of, of lithium development projects really needs to start attracting capital if it's going to push forward and, and be ready for production towards the end of this decade, beginning of the next one. I hate to put you on the spot now, but uh, any idea what, how much LCE was shipped during 2021? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. Because, we, I mean, we haven't, got the, uh, we haven't got the final numbers anyway. Yeah. But, uh, no, I haven't, I haven't got those numbers off the top of my head. Great, great. Yeah. Why you have been very aggressive in the last quarter. They're involved in, as you just said, the hard rock mining in Zimbabwe. They're partnering with battery manufacturers like Faris. They're doing some work with BJ, uh, sorry, uh, EA Spring, sorry, Beijing EA Spring. They're working on precursor plants, cobalt plants. They're involved in nickel as well and recycling, of course. But they have been very busy in Q4. There is clear differentiation between how the, the Chinese wouldn't even say majors, but a lot of the Chinese companies are acting strategically and how the Western companies are not acting strategically. And yes, we have seen a few you know, acquisitions go through, but we really haven't seen a, a joined up strategy emerging from, from some of the Western majors. For me, it, it's a mistake that they should be starting to invest in this space because it's going to be a huge huge space for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 20 years. And it seems strange that we haven't really seen the, the Western majors become that active in the yeah. area. 
in China, we had SAIC and uh, GAC co-invest in a hard rock project in uh, Yuchang City, which is the lithium capital of Asia. So it's an example of Chinese OEMs uh, getting involved. It's a lipodolite. Lipodolite. I don't know, want to transpire me in any way. Lipidolite. That's it. Lipidolite. I think it's a richer form of uh, hard rock, right? Richer lithium rich. It is mined effectively in in China, and there are a couple of projects in the in the Western world uh, looking at at, uh, lipidolite. There's actually um, five or six uh, converters in China that utilize lipidolite to produce uh, lithium carbonate. So it is it is an accepted technology in China even though it hasn't really been targeted in the Western world up till now. The Western world preferred to focus on spodumene-rich hard rock. But uh, I think that there are a few projects now starting to come through. I think Cornish Lithium is looking at uh, lipidolite extraction in the UK. So, um, uh, And I, I'm vaguely aware there's a project in Namibia as well. But um, All right. yeah, so I, I, I think it's, it's starting, starting to happen. And, you know, we will need to look at all of these different sources going forward, because um, if we're going to match uh, supply with demand, I think. Was there a recent uh, spodumene auction? I didn't, I didn't hear about it. Um, I don't think so, but I think primarily because Pil- Pilbara warned that they weren't going to have uh, such high shipments. So possibly they haven't been able to do an auction because they didn't have enough material ready to auction. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, but that hasn't stopped the uh, spodumene price uh, continuing to creep up, creep up over uh, December and the beginning of January. So um, yeah. it's now trading uh, well above two thousand five hundred dollars a ton. So two thousand five hundred. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> very nice. Really drove up this price. Yeah. I remember when it was uh, five hundred not too long ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, it got as low as uh, three fifty. So uh, wow. it's, it's quite a quite a big move. I wouldn't rule it out getting to. Three and a half thousand, four thousand by the end of the year. It's certainly possible. Wow, very good. Not great for the industry, but obviously very good for the um, for the spodumen producers. Okay, I might leave it at that and uh, say to Cormac, uh, thanks uh, very much indeed for your time, and uh, we look forward to uh, speaking uh, a little bit more. So that over the course of uh, what looks set to be quite an exciting year for the uh, battery space. Yeah, it's going to be the biggest year I bet so far. <laughs> biggest year so far, hopefully not the biggest year. We'll, we'll see <laughs> pretty big years. Okay, Maybe. thanks very much, Cormac. Okay. Uh, speak to you next month. Cheers. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for January. You can get more detail on any of the topics we discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.